I guess maybe you knew that tune after all. Well done. <laughs> I invite you to take the uh, forms book and turn to the Canons of Dort, or actually you can find it in the Trinity uh, as well, page 900 in the back of the Trinity Psalter hymnal. difficult truths for us to comprehend. I'm going to read Article 15 and then Article 18. We've looked at the doctrine of election, and uh, now we want to consider reprobation, which is Article 15. And then we're going to open God's Word to Romans 9, reading verses 1 to 24, and focusing particularly on verses 17 and 18 in connection with these articles. Article 15, reprobation, moreover, Holy Scripture most especially highlights this eternal and undeserved grace of our election and brings it out more clearly for us in that it further bears witness that not all people have been chosen, but that some have not been chosen or have been passed by in God's eternal election, those, that is, concerning whom God, on the basis of his entirely free most just, irreproachable, and unchangeable good pleasure made the following decision, to leave them in the common misery into which by their own fault they have plunged themselves, not to grant them saving faith and the grace of conversion, but finally to condemn and eternally punish them, having been left in their own ways and under his just judgment, not only for their unbelief, but also for all their other sins in order to display his justice. And this is the decision of reprobation, which does not at all make God the author of sin, a blasphemous thought, but rather its fearful, irreproachable, just judge and avenger. Now drop down to Article 18, the proper attitude toward election and reprobation. To those who complain about this grace of an undeserved election and about the severity of a just reprobation, we reply with the words of the apostle, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Romans 9.20. And with the words of our Savior, have I no right to do what I want with my own? We, however, with reverent adoration of these secret things, cry out with the apostle, O oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways beyond tracing out! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has first given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. Open your Bibles now, please, to the book of Romans. Romans 9. Verses 1 to 24. Romans chapter 9. 
I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called, not of Jews only, but also of Gentiles so far. The reading of God's Word, I encourage you to keep it open, and we'll be looking particularly at verses 17 and 18. In our previous study of the doctrines of grace, we considered the wonderful, mind-stretching, and God-exalting truth of election. In Ephesians 1, Paul said he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. From all eternity, God chose certain people and determined to save them by the sacrifice of his Son. We saw that election is not based upon foreseen faith the foreseen decisions or responses of certain people to the gospel, it is not based on anything in those who are chosen. 
The cause of this undeserved election is exclusively the good pleasure of God. The choice is made without any respect to our works. It is by His mercy, grace, and good pleasure alone. God looked upon us in love before we ever thought about loving Him. What a humbling, comforting, and amazing thought. We said last time that when you rightly understand the doctrine of election, it will cause you to fall down in worship. It will crush your pride. It will promote your pursuit of holiness. It will encourage you in evangelism and missions. And it will fill you with His peace. But now today, we want to consider a subject that some prefer to dismiss altogether. There are those who find it unacceptable and even repulsive because it doesn't seem to fit with their understanding of who God is. The doctrine I am referring to is, of course, the doctrine of reprobation. What is reprobation? Well, reprobation is the flip side of election. That is to say, if God has chosen some to salvation, it implies that others are not chosen to salvation. If some are elect, it implies that others are non-elect. The non-elect are the reprobate. The fact that God chooses to soften the hearts of His chosen ones and inclines them to believe implies that He, he, he chooses to leave others in their wickedness and hardness of heart. Election and reprobation make up the two sides of predestination. Those who object to the doctrine of reprobation sometimes say, I can't believe, I can't believe that a God of love would do such a thing. It's not like Him. It's unfair. However, when we seriously study the Scriptures, we cannot escape the doctrine of reprobation. The Bible not only speaks of God's love for Jacob, but also of God's holy hatred for Esau. While this truth may be hard to understand and difficult to grasp, even John Calvin spoke of the teaching of reprobation as an awesome decree, a difficult thing for us to comprehend. It is nevertheless revealed in Scripture. If we're going to speak about election, the election of Jacob, then we must also speak of the non-election of Esau. Although we may struggle with it, and although it should be handled with great care, this doctrine should not be merely swept under the rug. And so this afternoon, as we reflect upon those whom God has passed by, I want to direct your attention to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, verses 17 and 18. As we open up this text, I want us to consider three things. Number one, Pharaoh's power. Number two, God's power. Number three, God's prerogative. First of all, Pharaoh's power. Look with me, please, in your Bible to verse 17. Verse 17. For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. From the books of Genesis and Exodus, we learn how the family of Jacob moved to Egypt where they were provided for by the prime minister, their brother, Joseph. The sons of Jacob had sold Joseph as a slave. You know the story. But even though they meant evil against him, God meant it for good. 
The family of Jacob was preserved during a season of great famine, and over time, the 70 people of the house of Jacob grew into a great nation. Exodus 1 tells us that the children of Israel grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. However, after the death of Joseph and all that generation, there arose a new king over Egypt, who is the Pharaoh spoken of here in our text. He was a mighty ruler, a man of great prominence, wealth, and influence. Unfortunately for the descendants of Jacob, this Pharaoh forgot Joseph and all that he had done for the Egyptians. And as he observed the Israelites, he was concerned that they were more and mightier than the Egyptians. Pharaoh was afraid that in the event of war, the Israelites might join the enemies of Egypt and fight against the Egyptians. To prevent this from happening, he used the Israelites as slaves to build the supply cities of Pithom and Ramses. But Exodus 1 tells us that the more he afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And the Egyptians were in dread. And so they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. Pharaoh also commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill all the baby boys that were born to the Hebrews. When the Hebrew midwives disobeyed him, Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river. Congregation, Pharaoh was not only a wealthy man who lived in a vast and splendid palace, but he also had the power of life and death over his subjects. If he said life, it was life. If he said death, it was death. You don't mess with Pharaoh. He was regarded as a god. But what Pharaoh didn't realize was that his position of authority was given to him by the one true God of heaven and earth. Pharaoh thought that he was sovereign. Being an absolute monarch, he assumed that he was autonomous. He was in charge of his own life and his own destiny. But what does verse 17 say? I have raised you up. I have raised you up. Paul said in Romans 13:1, we quoted it this morning, there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Little did Pharaoh realize that the power he possessed was given by the God of Israel. Of course, the same is true today. Sometimes world leaders seem to think that they seem to think quite highly of themselves. They have worked hard to get where they are, and they regard their success as the result of their own planning and diligence. World leaders are sometimes full of themselves. Some of them seem to regard themselves as superior to others. That was certainly the case with the Pharaoh of Egypt. If you want to live a long life, don't cross him. Don't annoy him. But Pharaohs, kings, Prime ministers, presidents, and dictators are all raised up by God. There's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. World leaders may have a high opinion of themselves, and they may attribute their accomplishments to their own brilliance and political savvy, 
But Scripture says he, God, removes kings and raises them up. We saw that in Daniel 2.21. The fact is, in the sight of God, world leaders are not much bigger than a grain of sand. For the Egyptians to worship Pharaoh as a god was utterly ridiculous. Think about it. A god who occasionally suffers from flus, colds, fever, and arthritis. A God who gets tired and has to sleep at night. A God who eventually gets gray hair and impaired vision, who gets old and wrinkled and eventually dies. A God who has to be buried. A God whose voice becomes forever silent. A God whose body decomposes in the tomb. What kind of a God is that? Yet when you read the Exodus account, you get the distinct impression that Pharaoh regarded himself as being at the top of the world. He called the shots. I am Pharaoh. I do as I please. You do as I please. When I speak, you listen. And you don't speak without my permission. When I determine that something is to be done, you see it to, it, to it that it's done at once. I am supreme. If I think that a certain people group in my realm is a threat, I have the right to suppress them by making them slaves. I have the right to kill their children. I am the center of the world. And others exist to serve me and to make my life pleasant. Congregation, the arrogance of Pharaoh gives us some insight into the hearts of all who refuse to yield to the authority of the Lord. Not everyone has the power of Pharaoh, and not everyone exercises control over other people as Pharaoh did, yet the arrogance of Pharaoh provides a glimpse into the hearts of all unbelievers. I am Lord. I am master, I am king, I am on the throne, I'm the center of the universe, I give account to no one, I am God. Although most unbelievers would never vocalize such sentiments, their unwillingness to yield their lives to the Lord reveals a hard, stubborn, defiant, insubordinate, demonically controlled heart. Unless that heart is graciously softened by the Holy Spirit, unless hard-hearted sinners receive from God the gift of faith to believe in Christ, they will eventually come under God's just judgment for their sin. How thankful you can be. How thankful you can be if your heart has been softened by the grace of God. Like Pharaoh, we are arrogant by nature. Yes, we are. The attitude of Pharaoh's heart is perhaps best summarized in his response to the words of Moses. Remember when Moses came to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. What was Pharaoh's response? Children, what was Pharaoh's response? Exodus 5 verse 2, And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. With a note of disdain, he said, Who is the Lord? 
Why should I obey him? I don't know him. I don't fear him. And I have no intention of doing what he says. Dear friends, isn't that your heart by nature? Aren't we proud and pig-headed in our natural state? Who is the Lord? I don't know him, and I have no intention of doing what he says. That's the heart of Pharaoh. And that's the sentiment of the entire human race in our state of sin, alienated from God and full of ourselves, full of ourselves. God would have done no injustice to condemn us all on account of our sin. But then, congregation, we move secondly from Pharaoh's power to God's power. From Pharaoh's power to God's power. Look again at Romans 9, 17. For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show, what? My power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. While Pharaoh liked to flex his muscles and give people the impression that he directed the universe, he was oblivious to the fact that it was God's plan to display his power in him so that God's name, not Pharaoh's, might be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord granted Pharaoh a position of authority so that he could demonstrate his far greater power and authority and thereby bring glory to his own name. In Exodus 7, when Moses and Aaron appeared for the first time in the presence of Pharaoh, what did Aaron throw down before Pharaoh and his officials? He threw down his staff as God had directed, and his staff became a serpent. Now, it's helpful to understand that in Egypt, serpents were worshipped as gods. Children, do you remember what the pharaohs wore on the front of their headpiece up here? Do you remember what they wore there on the front of their headpiece? Right above the king's forehead was a raised cobra's head. It was a symbol of pharaoh's power. Therefore, when Aaron cast down the staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and the staff became a serpent, it was a direct challenge to Pharaoh's power and sovereignty. But Pharaoh wasn't easily intimidated. He immediately sent for the court magicians. He wanted to prove to Moses and Aaron that anything they could do, he could do as well or better. Pharaoh's wise men and sorcerers came into into his presence and they did as Moses and Aaron had done. They threw down their staffs and they became serpents. So was the power of Pharaoh equal to or greater than the power of Moses and Aaron's God? What's the answer, children? Exodus 7 verse 12 tells us that Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. What was the message? It indicated that the God of Moses was supreme. It was meant to be a clear sign that there was an authority greater than Pharaoh, an authority greater than the Egyptian sorcerers, an authority greater than the Egyptian gods. 
when Aaron's staff prevailed. It must have been a a tremendous blow to the pride of the mighty Pharaoh. It was undeniable that Moses came in the name of a superior power. Moses, God, is sovereign over Egypt. Nevertheless, the end of that episode says, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. Brothers and sisters, What Pharaoh didn't realize was that this was only the beginning of a far greater humiliation that was about to come through the ten plagues. Moses and Aaron's staff devouring the Egyptian staffs only foreshadowed far more devastating events. God would display His power and proclaim His name in all the earth. He would do so through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. In Exodus 7, when Moses, by God's power, turned the water into blood so that the fish stank and the Egyptians were not able to drink the water, we read at the end of that first plague that Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them. As the Lord had said, neither was his heart moved by this. In Exodus 8, When Moses, by God's power, sent a plague of frogs, we read at the end of the second plague that when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. At the end of the third plague of lice, we read again that Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. After the fourth plague of flies, Scripture says, But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. The fifth plague, severe pestilence of the livestock, drew from Pharaoh the same response, but the heart of Pharaoh became hard, Exodus 9-7. Sixth plague, boils on man and beast. At the end of that plague, the wording is slightly different. This time it says what? But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses, Exodus 9, 12. After plagues 1 through 5, we read, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. But after plague number 6, we read, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. In the ten plagues of Egypt, what happened? All the gods of Egypt were defeated. Each of the ten plagues was associated with one of the gods of Egypt. Numbers 33 verse 4 says that the Lord executed judgment on their gods. The Egyptians worshipped the river Nile. Prayers and offerings were presented to the Nile god. It was a source of life for Egypt. It provided water for drinking, irrigation, and transportation. Everything in Egypt depended on the Nile. Therefore, it was regarded as a god. But what happened? Moses struck the waters of the Nile and they turned to blood. The fish died and the river stank. 
He turned the life-giving God into a stinking river of death. God was telling Pharaoh that as the river stank, so their entire religious system stank in his nostrils. Following the defeat of the Nile God, Moses went on to defeat the frog goddess, the goddess Hecate. By the word of Moses, thousands and thousands of frogs covered the land. And then again, by the word of Moses, they all died. The goddess Hecate was totally defeated. The decaying frogs turned the land into a rotting, stinking, miserable mess. Congregation, you could go through each of the plagues and you would discover that they are all associated with the Egyptians' god. Not only the Nile god and the frog goddess, but also the earth god, the bull god Apis, the goddess Hathor, the form of a woman with the head of a cow, the goddess Sekhmet, who is said to have power over disease, Nut, the sky goddess, Osiris, the god of crops, Set, the storm god, Senehem, the divine protector from pests, Ray, the sun god, and finally, the firstborn son of Pharaoh, heir to the throne who was considered a god. But the god of Moses smote him. You see, in the plagues, the Lord executed judgments on their gods. Because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, one god or goddess after another was defeated so that Egypt's entire religious system was proven to be worthless. And not only were the gods of Egypt proven to be rubbish, but through all the terrible devastation of the land, the one true God was exalted. God could have wiped Pharaoh off the face of the earth the first time Moses appeared in his presence, but he didn't do so. He preserved Pharaoh for a reason. Our text says, have a look again, Romans 9, 17, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. God sustained Pharaoh for one reason alone, that the full range of his power might be known and that his name might be magnified. You see, God has a passionate commitment to magnify his glory. God has a passionate commitment to magnify his glory. But now perhaps some of you are thinking, that's not fair. That's not fair. If God raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose, then poor Pharaoh didn't stand a chance. Ten times in the Exodus account, we read of God hardening his heart. What kind of a God is that? Maybe you're thinking Pharaoh was nothing more than a puppet on a string. He couldn't obey God if he wanted to. God appointed him to this task. He was nothing more than a robot with God at the controls. Moses was chosen to salvation and eternal life, and Pharaoh was not chosen. Therefore, he didn't have a chance. That's not fair. It's just not fair. 
Well, this brings us to point number three. We've considered Pharaoh's power, number one, and God's power, number two, we conclude with God's prerogative. God's prerogative. Look with me, please, to Romans 9, 18. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. How are we to understand this verse? We need to be very careful how we interpret it, lest we in some way distort the character of God. First of all, as we approach verses like this, let us remember what the Lord says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11. What did He say? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? That's the heart of God. God takes no delight in the death and condemnation of the wicked, and neither should we. Whenever we see people with hard, Pharaoh-like hearts against the Lord and the gospel of salvation, it should fill our hearts with sadness. Second, we should also understand that when the Scripture says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, It does not mean that he took an innocent, righteous, virtuous person and made him wicked. That is not the case. That is not the case. God did not take a godly man and make him ungodly. He did not create evil in Pharaoh's heart so that he would stubbornly oppose the Israelites. Neither did the Lord prevent him from coming to faith in the God of Israel or prevent him from believing the gospel promises. When we discuss election and reprobation, we need to remember that God does not reprobate in exactly the same way that He elects. Or to state it another way, we should not view reprobation as the direct opposite of election. What do I mean? Well, with respect to the elect, God chooses from eternity those who will be saved, And in the course of time, He intervenes in their lives, softens their hearts, and creates saving faith in them by His grace. God actively brings the elect from spiritual death to spiritual life and draws them to faith in Jesus. He rescues them from their corruption. He changes their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh so that they become alive to the things of God. However, With respect to the reprobate, God does not doom them from eternity and then in the course of time intrude into their lives and create evil in their souls, thereby ensuring their ultimate damnation. God doesn't do that. Article 15 of the Canons of Dork correctly says that God is not the author of sin, the very thought of which is blasphemy. Scripture vehemently denies that God is the author of sin. God does not cause hardening by creating evil in the reprobate in the same way that He causes softening by creating faith in the elect. In the case of the reprobate, God merely what? Passes them by and leaves them to their own devices. 
Again, Article 15 tells us that God's decree of reprobation merely leaves men in the common misery into which, by their own fault, they willingly plunge themselves. Election is God's decree to redeem people out of their sin and misery, whereas reprobation is God's decree to leave people in their sin and misery and justly condemn them for their sins. In election, God changes the sinful heart to enable the sinner to receive Christ. In reprobation, God changes nothing at all. He allows them to have what they want most, their own sins. So, when Scripture says that God hardened his heart, it simply means that God let go of the restraints so that the depravity of Pharaoh's heart was unleashed. God did not prevent Pharaoh from repenting, coming to faith, believing, and obeying. He merely let go of the reins. God did not treat him unjustly. He merely left him where he wanted to be. In sin. In sin. God gave him over to his sin. He did not have to create new, any new evil in his heart. To make Pharaoh more wicked than he already was, God only had to remove the restraints and give him over to his own sin. Is there anything unjust about that? Is it correct to say that it's unfair on God's part? Certainly not. It is perfectly just for God to give an evil man over to evil. In verse 18, Paul says, have a look, verse 18. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. God is not obligated to show mercy to all. In fact, he is not obligated to show mercy to any. He is not obligated to grant saving faith and the grace of conversion to any. If you are a believer, if your heart has been softened so that you trust in the crucified and risen Jesus, and if you have received new life by the Word and Spirit, then you can only say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for showing mercy to me. You would have been perfectly just to leave me in my sin and misery, but you have had mercy on me and led me to Jesus. You have bestowed upon me saving faith and the grace of conversion, and you have enabled me to love the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Congregation, by nature, we all deserve the judgment that fell on Pharaoh. Before Christ found you, you had essentially the same heart as Pharaoh, stubborn, obstinate, and tenaciously rebellious against the Most High. Were it not for the gift of saving faith and the grace of conversion, your heart has a natural tendency to resist the one true God and to worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And like Pharaoh, even the greatest of miracles would not persuade you to turn to God in faith. 
Pharaoh saw with his own eyes the most remarkable things that had ever taken place in Egypt's history. Yet he refused to yield to the Most High. Congregation, what's the difference between Moses and Pharaoh? Or between you and Pharaoh? Or between you and your unbelieving neighbor who died in defiance of God? What's the difference? The difference is not Moses' moral superiority over that of Pharaoh, or your moral superiority over that of Pharaoh, or over that of your unbelieving neighbor. The difference is what? God's mercy. God's mercy. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. God made his mercy known through the saving of Moses, and God made his justice and power known by judging Pharaoh. It is God's prerogative to save whom he will and judge whom he will. No one, no one is treated with injustice. Congregation, when you hear about the wickedness of certain people, remember, without God's mercy in your life, you could be like that. The saying is true, there but for the grace of God go I. There but for the grace of God go I. Apart from the grace and mercy of God, we would all remain enslaved to sin and death. The natural tendency of the human heart is to shut the true God out of our lives and to reject the saving message of the cross. And so I say to you this afternoon, if you know the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, if you have come to see the foolishness of idolatry and the foolishness of sin, then you have good reason to worship and serve the God of Moses, the God of Paul, the God of Scripture. Praise God that he did not pass you by and leave you in the company of Pharaoh, Esau, and Judas Iscariot. Yes, you have good reason for joy and celebration. And if you're uncertain of your salvation this afternoon, or if you have not repented of your sin and believed on Jesus, if there's anyone here who is stubbornly resisting, God says to you, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? For why should you die? Turn from your sin. Turn to the Savior, and you will know the saving love and everlasting, unfailing, incomprehensible compassion of our Lord. Let us pray.
Lord, we acknowledge before you this afternoon that by nature we have hard, Pharaoh-like, Esau-like, Judas Iscariot-like hearts. And we can only plead upon the basis of your great mercy. We know, Lord, that you receive all those who repent of their sin and turn to you in faith. So we have reason, Lord, for great joy. Lord, we too deserve your condemnation. But you have come to us in the person of Jesus Christ and you have given us great hope. That by the work of your Spirit, Lord, you have softened our hearts and given us the desire to live for your glory. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we may show forth your glory to others, that we may declare the praises of our God. May we never accuse you of injustice. And may we humbly bow before you. You are the potter, we are the clay. And so we may, may we take great pleasure in your incomprehensible mercy. And so receive our praises as we conclude this service. And should there be anyone, Lord, still in this assembly with a hard heart, a Pharaoh-like heart, we ask that you'll bring them in your mercy to their knees, that they too may experience the joy of sins forgiven and life everlasting. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.